This is lecture number 16 on the prophet Isaiah, part of the series of Major Prophets by Robert Vinoy of Biblical Theological Seminary. Lecture number 16. Let's go on to Isaiah chapter 49. This is, if you're keeping a list of the servant passages, number 8. This includes verses 1 to 9, but perhaps it should go down to verse 12. Either way, this is one of the major passages on the servant of the Lord. Beginning here with chapter 49, the servant theme becomes much more prominent. What we have seen up to this point is one major passage in chapter 42, but apart from that, the theme of the servant has been interjected in a verse or two here and there in Isaiah. But beginning in chapter 49 now, it becomes much more emphasized as we move on towards the climax of the servant theme in chapter 53. I think it's quite clear that the servant is speaking here in chapter 49, verses 1 to 9. Let's read it. Quote, Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength, he says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth." This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and rise up, princes will see and bow down, because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says, in the time of my favor I will answer you, and in the day of salvation I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances, to say to the captives, Come out, and to those in darkness, Be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. End quote. I want to make some general remarks, and then we will go back and look at it more specifically. But here are some general remarks. I think it is quite clear the servant is speaking here in these verses 1 to 9. You have the use of the term servant in verses 3, 5, 6, and 7. Quote, you are my servant, Israel, in verse 3. In verse 5 we read, And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant. And then in verse 6, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant. So that is verses 3, 5, 6, and then in verse 7 we read, To the servant of rulers. That's in the middle of verse 7. So here we have the use of the term servant in verses 3, 5, 6, 
and 7 in chapter 49 of Isaiah. In chapter 49, verses 8 and 9, some of those phrases used in chapter 42, verses 6 and 7, are repeated. I'm quoting, I will make you for a covenant of the people, end quote. That's in chapter 49, verse 8, and also in chapter 42, verse 6. Go to chapter 49, verse 9. We read, To say to the captives, Come out, to those in darkness, be free. That's similar to what we find in chapter 42, verse 7, where we read, To free the captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. So very similar things are said here to what we find in chapter 42. But then, when you ask about the identity of the servant, this passage seems quite clear in verse 3. Quote, He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. End quote. Here it seems clearly to be said that the speaker is God's servant in the sense of Israel. Yet, when you get down to chapter 49, verses 5 and 6, it seems that the speaker is differentiated from Israel. We read, And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. The I there is certainly distinct from Israel, and the servant is to bring Jacob, or Israel, to the Lord. And when you get down to verse 6, we read, He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. So the servant is going to raise the tribes of Jacob, restore the preserved of Israel. So it seems very clear that the servant is distinguished from Israel in verses 5 and 6. In fact, you have three statements in those two verses that indicate that the servant is the one who is to restore Israel. So the question arises then, how do we explain the fact that the servant is both called Israel and differentiated from Israel? How can you explain that? In verse 3, the servant is called Israel. Yet in verses 5 and 6, you get three statements that differentiate the servant from Israel. That's a difficult question. If you reflect on the previous passages, it would seem that Israel has been called to perform the work of the servant. Israel is to be a light to the Gentiles. Israel is to open blind eyes, bring prisoners out of prison, and so forth. Yet Israel can't do that work because at the same time we read that Israel is weak. Israel is sinful, Israel herself is in bondage, and Israel is rebellious. Because of that, Israel has been sent into captivity. Nevertheless, the work is to be performed, and the work is to be performed by Israel. So it seems, in an attempt to find some resolution here, that what is being said is that the one who is going to deliver Israel, and that one ultimately is going to be the light to the Gentiles, and to be a covenant for the people, and to deliver the prisoners from darkness and so forth, that one is from Israel and also represents Israel. It seems that the personal phrase is used that you find already here in chapter 49, but which becomes much clearer in chapter 50 as we go further on. The personal phrases used of the servant suggest that the servant is an individual who will come out of Israel and who will also represent Israel, yet he can be distinguished from the rest of Israel. 
That's what's beginning to come into focus in chapter 49. So you can read in verse 5 that, quote, the Lord formed me in the womb, end quote. Right there, you begin to think of an individualization. And he's doing this, quote, to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength, end quote. Begin to think in terms of the servant coming out of Israel, representing Israel, yet being distinguished or distinct from Israel. Now, let's go back and look at more specific statements in these verses. The first verse is interesting. I quote, Listen, O coasts, unto me, and hearken, ye people from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the body of my mother has he made mention of my name. End quote. I'm reading that from the King James. I think the New International Version, or the NIV, is somewhat unfortunate when they paraphrased it as, quote, Listen to me, you islands, hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. End quote. Now you compare that with, quote, The Lord has called me from the womb. From the body of my mother has he made mention of my name. End quote. The Hebrew is very clear on that. Literally, in the Hebrew we have, and here's my translation, The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named me. End quote. That's the way the Hebrew reads literally. So you have reference to the mother in connection with the servant. Ordinarily in scripture, people were spoken of as the seed of the father. You have that patriarchal sort of lineage in the Old Testament. It's only rare that you have reference made to the mother. But here you have, I think, an important thread that begins to take shape. It really goes back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's the seed of the woman who ultimately will destroy the serpent. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 15, or rather verse 14, we read, quote, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, end quote. Here, that same kind of idea is at least suggested. Quote, the Lord has called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. End quote. All reference to the womb and to the mother is eliminated in the way the NIV words this passage. But again, it suggests an individualization of the servant. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. Clearly, we're talking about an individual here. Verse 2 gives two ideas that are repeated in a synonymous parallelism. I think the two ideas are effectiveness and protection. You read, quote, He has made my mouth like a sharp sword, end quote, and then the parallelism, quote, And he made me a polished shaft, end quote. You can divide that verse into four phrases. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword, would be the first. The second one would be, in the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me. The third, which goes back in parallel to the first, and made me a polished shaft. Then the fourth, which parallels the second, in his quiver he has hid me. So you have, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. He made me a polished shaft. That refers to effectiveness. His mouth is like a sharp sword, and he is like a polished shaft like a javelin, we might say. It references the successful progress of the work of the servant. The other thought is protection. 
We read, in the shadow of his hand he has hidden me, and in his quiver he has hidden me. God has protected his servant even through all the forces of wickedness and through all that will try to destroy the work of the servant. But they will not succeed because God will protect his servant. So the servant is both effective and the servant is protected. Then in chapter 49, verse 3, you have that identification. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. That brings us to verse 4 that was asked about, But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. The interpretation there is difficult. Some see the verse as referring to Israel, which, in light of verse 3, is not surprising, because verse 3 says, You are my servant, Israel. So some see the verse as referring to Israel, making a statement in verse 4 about her inability to fulfill the task assigned to her. And therefore we have the question, But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. But I think the problem with that is, the reason for the inability of Israel to fulfill the task of the servant is really not so much that they toiled in vain, but it's her sin. So I think it's probably better to take verse 4 as the servant individualized, not as collective, the nation. But the servant individualized suggests that his own work appears to be a failure. Listen to what he says, quote, Then I said, this is the individualized servant speaking of himself, he says, I have labored to no purpose. So in his eyes, his work appears to be a failure. He says, I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. The thought is, his work may appear to be a failure, but his judgment is with the Lord. There is no reason for discouragement. He will be vindicated. It seems to me that those words fit very well with the words of Christ, immediately the words of the servant individualized. Then you see in verses 5 and 6, the servant clearly distinguished from Israel. Quote, and now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel that I have kept. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles. Then in verse 5, the servant is to bring Jacob again to the Lord, and certainly the servant there is distinguished from Israel. But verse 6 takes that step further. While the work of the servant in restoring the tribes of Jacob is of importance, it's almost insignificant in a certain sense compared to the greater task of bringing a light to the Gentiles. We quote again, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that is, to the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. End quote. The servant is the one who is going to be the means of spreading the salvation of God and the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
It is a remarkable accomplishment that will come through the work of the servant. Isaiah chapter 49 verse 7 speaks of the humiliation of the servant contrasted with his later exaltation. I quote again, This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, end quote. There is the humiliation, but that is contrasted in the latter part of the verse when he says, Kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you, end quote. Now, some try to explain that verse as referring to Israel. They see the collective idea of the servant, Israel in exile, humiliated, despised, but later restored as a nation. I don't think that really does justice to the statements of the verse, and particularly not to the things that are said in verses 8 and 9, the following two verses that are beyond the capacity of Israel to fulfill. It says in verse 8 and 9, quote, This is what the Lord says, In the time of my favor I will answer you, and in the day of salvation I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances, to say to the captives, Come out, and to those in darkness, Be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. End quote. Then you move on to 8 and 9. It seems clearly that he's talking about things that are beyond the capacity of Israel to fulfill. The same problem is what we had back in chapter 42. How can Israel do these things when Israel herself is sinful? It's true Israel has been humiliated. So you know that in the first part of verse 7, quote, to him whom man despises refers to Israel. Israel has been humiliated, but that was because of her sin, and that kind of humiliation could never lead to the accomplishments that we read about in verses 8 and 9. Now, that whole theme is much more clearly developed when you get to the end of chapter 52 and on to chapter 53. Chapter 49, verse 10 says, and I quote, They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat upon them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them besides springs of water. End quote. It seems to me in verse 10 you have a description of the blessings that will come to those who follow the servant as he leads them by springs of water. The description of the blessings is that they come to those who follow the servant. Verse 11 continues that theme. He says, I will turn all my mountain roads into highways. They will be raised up. It is similar, you remember, to the early part of chapter 40 when we read, Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill laid low. Then we have chapter 49, verse 12. Quote, Behold, these shall come from afar, and lo, those from the north and from the west and from the land of Sinim. End quote. You have an indication of the remarkable extent of the work of the servant when people will come from the north, west, and even from this land of Sinim. The NIV translates Sinim as from the region of Aswan, but then there's a text note, and that says that according to the Dead Sea Scrolls, Aswan, the Masoretic text says Sinim. 
Look at your citations. I think I have a note there on page 34, and this is taken from E.J. Young, page 294 of his commentary on Isaiah. And I'm quoting from E.J. Young. Some have sought to identify the word sinim with the Sinites of Genesis chapter 10, verse 17, and then in 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 15. Appeal has been made, this is Jerome, to the wilderness of sin. J. H. Michalis, in 1775, when he's writing his commentary, suggests amending the text, the Masoretic text, to Swanim, and meaning the reference to Sin, or Pelusium, which is Aswan in southern Egypt. And this seems to be supported by 1st Q, that's the Qumran scroll at Qumran, which gives the consonants S-W-N-Y-Y-M, possibly to be read Swani-Yim. Why, however, is the district identified by the name of one of its cities, and in fact not a particularly well-known city at that? More importantly, this forms no suitable contrast to the north and the west, or the sea, of the preceding passage. It is a place too near at hand. Quite possibly, therefore, the reference is to a district to the east, so far away that it stands for a quarter of the earth. China may be that reference. The Arabic Tsin may favor this. One cannot, however, be dogmatic. What is important is that a faraway district, a quarter of the earth, is intended for the return to God and Christ will be worldwide. This is what E.J. Young says. In other words, Young is suggesting that the implication of the verse is a worldwide extent of those who will be followers of the servant. These will come from afar, lo, these from the north, and from the west, and from the land of Sinim. So it makes sense, if you have north and west, that Sinim may be to the east. But exactly what is the identification of Sinim? That's disputed, and it's not clear. When you speak of the Sino-Soviet relations, there's the root that is applied to China, Sino, Sinim. There's a correlation there, isn't there? Well, the last verse is, quote, Shout for joy, O heavens, rejoice, O earth, burst into song, O mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. End quote. The exhortation is to the heavens and to the earth to break forth into joy because of the salvation that the Lord brings to his people through the work of his servant. All right, that's a major passage. There is a lot in Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 to 12, about the servant. There seems to be that ambiguity that flows through these passages, and it moves towards an individualization of the servant. Here, that individualization is not complete. Now you go back to chapter 41, verse 8, and we read, Israel, you are my servant, end quote. Then you go on to chapter 43, verse 10, quote, you are my witnesses, my servants, end quote. Its plural there refers to Israel. It seems in chapter 49, verse 1, already we have a movement towards individualization. The next passage, number 9 in the outline, is Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 to 11. This is the third major servant passage. The first one was Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 7, and the second was chapter 49, verses 1 to 9. Isaiah 50, verses 4 to 11, is the third major servant passage. 
In various places, particularly chapter 42, verse 6 and 7, and chapter 49, verse 6, we have read statements that say the servant is to be a light to the Gentiles. In chapter 42, verse 6 and verse 7, and in chapter 49, verse 6, there will be a light to the Gentiles. He is to deliver people from captivity and set free those who are in bondage. So we have been told the servant is to do this. But up to this point, we haven't really been told how he is going to do this. Here's where the explanation of how begins. It tells of the way in which the servant is going to accomplish these things that are said about him. The way, or the means, is not what you might expect. It takes us by surprise. First, let's read chapter 50, verses 4 to 9. Then I'll make some general remarks and then more specific ones. I'm reading. The Sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears, and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the Sovereign Lord that helps me. Who is he that will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. But now, all of you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go walk in the light of your fires and of the torches that you have set ablaze. But this is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. End quote. Now, here are some general remarks. I think you have a statement by the servant describing the suffering that he is going to go through and then the great justification that he will accomplish by it. Now, as we read the passage that describes these sufferings, which is a new idea, it's a theme that has hardly been developed up to this point. The question again is, is this being spoken by the servant as an individual, or can it be taken as a description of the sufferings that Israel as a nation is undergoing in her exile? In chapter 49, that humiliation of the servant in the first part of verse 7, is that Israel, or is it the individualized servant? I think with chapter 50 you find the clear answer to that question. Is it the nation, or is it an individual? You find a clear answer in verse 5, quote, The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears, and I have not been rebellious, I have not drawn back. End quote. That's the servant speaking. So the speaker says, I have not been rebellious, I have not turned away from doing the will of God. Then, when you go on to verse 6, you read that he voluntarily underwent the sufferings. Quote, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting, end quote. Now, these statements in chapter 50, verses 5 and 6, are completely contradictory to the picture of Israel that's contained in the previous chapters of this section of Isaiah, 
where Israel is represented as a servant who is deaf, blind, and rebellious. If this is Israel speaking, how can Israel say, I was not rebellious? Go back to Isaiah chapter 42, verses 49 to 24. Israel was sent into captivity for her sin. We read, Who is blind but my servant, and deaf like the messenger I sent? Who is blind like the one committed to me, blind like the servant of the Lord? Who handed Jacob over to become loot and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? End quote. In chapter 43, verses 23 and 24, we read, quote, You have not brought me sheep for burnt offerings, nor honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with grain offerings or wearied you with demands for incense. You have not brought any fragrant calamus for me or lavished on me the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your offenses. End quote. And then in chapter 48, verse 8, you have neither heard nor understood. From of old your ear has not been open. Well do I know how treacherous you are. You are called a rebel from birth. That's chapter 48, verse 8. So with that relatively close context for Israel, then to turn around and say, Well, I was not rebellious. I did not go away backwards. I did not turn away from the task that you sent before me. This would be totally inconsistent with what we know about Israel that we find in these other passages. So it seems to be clear that the speaker here in Isaiah 50 is not the nation Israel. Rather, it is the servant of the Lord, the individualized servant who takes the place of Israel and undergoes the suffering in Israel's place. So those are the general comments. Let's go back now and look at the specifics. In chapter 50, verse 4, we read, The Sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. End quote. The passage begins with a statement about the teaching work of God's servant. God has given him the tongue of the learned. Certainly, that reminds us of statements in the gospel narratives. For example, John's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 46. We read, Never did a man speak like this man. When Jesus taught, he taught with authority. We read again, The Sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. So Jesus spoke that way to the weary. Look at Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, where he says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Now look at Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. The second part of it we read, he wakens morning by morning, he wakes my ear to hear like the learned. It shows the close relationship of the servant to his father. Jesus, in John chapter 5, verse 30, spoke not of himself, but that which the father gave him. So here God wakens him morning by morning, waking his ear to hear God's message. Then in chapter 50, verse 5, I've already mentioned that, we read, the Sovereign Lord has opened my ears, and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. I don't think any person but Christ himself could truly make that statement. I was not rebellious. Everyone else that has ever lived has failed God at some point or another. Yet this one, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, was true to the work to which God called him, and he could truly say, I was not rebellious, and we could add to that, I never were or was rebellious. Then chapter 50, verse 6, 
We read, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. This refers to the voluntary suffering of Jesus Christ. Certainly, again, that contrasts with the involuntary suffering that Israel as a nation went through as it went into exile. Israel didn't go into exile with a great deal of joy. She was forced into exile because of her rebellion and her sin. Yet this one, the servant, gives his back to the smiters. As Isaiah 53 says, quote, He went as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. End quote. He did not hide his face from shame and spitting, but willingly offered up himself. Well, I see my time is up. Let's look at chapter 50, verse 7, and then we'll stop. It says, quote, Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. End quote. The servant declares that with the help of God, he has set his face to perform the work God has given him. Interestingly, Luke chapter 9, verse 53, says of Jesus that he set his face to go up to Jerusalem. So knowing what would befall him, he did not shrink back from facing and doing that which was his task. Quote, Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. End quote. And again, that refers to Jesus that we find in Luke chapter 9, verse 53. Well, let's stop there, and we'll look at verses 8 through 11 at the beginning of the next hour, and then we'll go on to Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. That ends lecture number 16 by Robert Benoit on the major prophets, particularly the prophet Isaiah.